Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Ashley Cabas, where I ask her, what's it like to survive an earthquake? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I am so excited for this episode. I have been wanting to do this for such a long time. We have the most amazing guests. We are going to learn today about how to survive an earthquake and who better to be here than Ashley Cabas, who is a professor in the Department of Civil Construction and Environmental Engineering at North Carolina State University, and she specializes in seismic hazards. Ashley, welcome to the show. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you like where all of this came from in this one salon where I was an assistant. It wasn't my first, but this, this man was a professor of like civil engineering and like he researched like impacts of earthquakes, like specifically in Southern California. And he Mm -hmm. was telling me that he would never let his daughter buy a house in downtown LA because if there was ever an earthquake of like over 8.0, it's going to be totally like isolated and totally fucked. And he would never let her go there. And then I was like, oh my God, like what happens after earthquakes? So then my boss at that conversation said that like they wrote up this thing in Japan about like how they survived earthquakes and the whole like, you shouldn't really get under the desk and like really you're supposed to get on the side of the desk for like the little like triangle or whatever. And so then that, then I was actually in an earthquake and it went for like 45 seconds and I didn't know what the fuck to do. I was running all around the house. I might as well have just taken a glass bowl and shouted it over my own head because I was running around, didn't know what to do. And so, and then we found you and I was like, Ashley can tell us what to do. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what you've described is uh, uh, very, I think, uh, meaningful because people are scared of earthquakes. It's a natural hazard and an extreme natural event. So um, observations after past earthquakes can be definitely scary. We see a lot of building collapsing and and life loss. So yeah, uh, I I can sympathize with that. And um, I study earthquake engineering. I, I study earthquakes and. I think it's it's important for for people to feel comfortable with the information about how earthquakes happen, uh, why they happen, and how engineers work very diligently to create earthquake-resistant civil infrastructure so that you don't have to necessarily avoid earthquake-prone regions, but understand your hazard and the risk imposed to your life and to your assets. So tell me if I'm wrong. One thing Mm -hmm. that I think, and I want to get into like more basics about like earthquakes, mm-hmm. what they are, how they're caused, the fallout of yeah. them. But I, in researching you, you have such a unique job. And again, just tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the way I understood it is, is there's like architects who, you know, build buildings and they need to like build like earthquake resistant buildings and like, you know, build things safely. So there's the architect. Then there's like the scientists who study like earthquakes and like, you know, the seismic plates and the tectonic shifts. And then there's the scientists who have to liaise go between the architects and like the seismologists or like earthquake scientists to like tell them about everything. And isn't that you? Aren't you the one who has to know about everything? Like the earthquakes, the different types, the dirt, the soil and the buildings, you know, you do all of it because you got to know a little bit of this and that. That's right, right? 
this is a highly multidisciplinary field. And to do good science, sound science, you definitely need to understand all the different dimensions. So if you can think of this in the different components you just described, there is the scientific part related to the phenomenon, the natural phenomenon. And that's where you can find geologists and seismologists looking at mm. the characteristics of the earthquake source. But then as the earthquake happens, you will have seismic waves propagating in all directions and they propagate throughout the crust. So you got people understanding how that traveling can affect the intensity of the ground shaking you ultimately feel at the ground surface. Now we are at the ground surface and we know that our civil infrastructure, it's not just floating, right? You need geotechnical engineers, those that study soils, mechanics of soils and and how to uh, design foundations for our buildings and other structures. You need us to understand be that bridge that uh, translate the hazard from the ground shaking into how the soil, how those earth materials will um, impact the ground shaking. And then we communicate with the structural engineers who are in charge of that uh, design for the earthquake resistant structure, that superstructure above the ground surface. And yeah, the architect also plays a role there in the design uh, along with the structural engineer. But yeah, in, in my case, I am in that transition or that um, area between seismologists and structural engineers trying to uh, communicate with uh, the scientific portion of it and the engineering more um, applied based uh, science part of it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> that is such a major job. Okay, so now we're going to wind all the way back to like... <laughs> you know, June, our uh, freshman year in high school level, because we all got to get it together. I think I, I think our science for me was in like seventh grade. So like, we really got to roll it back. So please bear with me. What is an earthquake and what causes them? Mm -hmm. That's a, an excellent starting point, Jonathan. And to understand earthquakes is to understand the story of the interior of the earth. And also story of stresses, basically forces acting on an area, uh, deformation and energy. So um, for many years, um, scientists have used data from earthquakes to understand what's going on beneath the ground surface all the way to the interior of our Earth. And the way we do that is by understanding uh, how these waves travel, the time it takes them to get from that uh, source to uh, different stations that record these earthquakes. Yes. And because we've had, yes, because we've had like a very steady beat of earthquakes throughout history, then we've got very good at understanding what's happening beneath that surface. So we basically have three layers. We have the crust, the mantle, and the core. And if you can think of an egg, for an analogy for scale, the outer part will be the crust, this very thin, and brittle, it can break, not necessarily easily, but abruptly. And then uh, you have the mantle, that would be the white, and then the jolt will be uh, the core. The main difference with this egg analogy would be that in the case of Earth, our core has two parts, one liquid, the outer part, and then the solid part in the middle. So with all this, Layers. If um, we had no changes in temperature, pressure, or composition within the Earth, then seismic waves will just travel past through. No changes, nothing. However, that's not what happens. Uh, we know that there are uh, changes in the path of that seismic wave, different times of arrival. So by understanding these travels of the seismic waves, we've understood boundaries 
between these different materials inside the earth and we understand what they represent so in a way earthquakes have helped us take a, a deep deep look into earth interior and more recently this same principle has been used in and Mars as well to help uh, scientists in NASA understand the interior structure of Mars. Same oh. principle using Mars quakes in this case. Yes. Oh my God, a yeah. Mars quake. Okay, wait. So, <laughs> so I, I love that analogy. So then what really, what's mm-hmm. causing the earthquake? Mm-hmm. Yep. So back to the egg analogy, we have our beautiful layers and we will look at the outer part that crust and the mantle that's right below it, because those are are brittle and they react or behave similarly. Um, For many years, they've been cooled and now they have been broken down in different plates, different masses, and these masses move around. Uh, They continuously move around slowly. So that doesn't really match with our picture of an earthquake happened really suddenly and, and very abruptly, a lot of movement, a lot of shaking. So what, what's causing this movement? And why does it feel so um, strongly at certain sites? And the, the reason is that that mantle has different temperatures at the top. It's um, closer to a cooler area. It's close to the atmosphere. And then at the bottom, it's closer to a very hot area, right? Ah, so yes. Difference in temperature causes that the, the more dense, cooler plates will start sinking. As they sink, they start warming up and then they continue, they will start rising. And you get this cyclic movement as they as they rise, they cool off. As they cool, they get denser, they start sinking. And this movement is called convection. And then that is what causes the plates to move. holy shit that's the convection okay so then okay wait so then because aren't Mm -hmm. there like multiple types of feeling there's like because that motion you're seeing that's giving me like the wave one where it's like i felt that one but then i've also felt one that was like it sounded like horses hooves it was like and then it was like 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 a faster shakier one and then there was one that was more like like more mm-hmm. like undulating waves. Why? Why does that uh-huh. happen? And is, so is there like three types of earthquakes or something or like five or two? This is a great question, Jonathan, because we need to differentiate earthquakes from earthquake ground motions. So what I'm describing is the natural phenomena. So the, the earthquake, the full rupture in a very weak spot in the rock where it slips and seismic waves are generated. What you are describing is what you experience in terms of the earthquake ground shaking or a ground motion. And yes, those seismic waves are different types, but there are two main types, body waves and surface waves. What you most likely felt at first was a compressional wave. You're going up and down, up and down. But then comes the secondary wave. Those are shear waves, and those move horizontally. So that's when the building goes side by side and, and everybody in it as well. And the last ones, the slowest ones, are surface waves. And that's when you feel that rolling. It's a very cyclic type of movement. But those are correspondent to the earthquake ground motion. And then, yes, there are different types of earthquakes, but those refer to the main event, to the rupture. What I'm talking about here in terms of the earth structure, so those are those plates uh, interacting with each other and creating a slip in in a weak portion of the rock. So let me see if I'm getting this straight. So the Mm -hmm. earthquake itself is just like the plates, like the initial, like the but, but then Mm -hmm. the results of the waves, that's the earthquake-related movements. Yes, yes, you got it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. 
And so, and that, and so does that mean that there's, so all three of those different types of waves can exist in one as a result of like one earthquake event. Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting part and why seismologists need to look into this and engineers as well is that seismic energy is distributed differently for every event among all these different types of waves. And this matters because buildings will react differently to different types of frequencies. Soils can also play a role in how that seismic energy is distributed. So we need to understand earthquake ground motions. And that's why uh, you see geotechnical earthquake engineers like me focusing on that. What characteristics of the medium of, of the soil can affect the characteristics of the shaking? Oh my God, I can't wait to go there. Okay, so wait, back to our egg analogy. The Another yeah. difference between like an egg and our earth would be like, like, because like, aren't the tectonic plates like, because isn't there like different types of movements that cause the earthquake? Mm-hmm. Like, can't there be like one going underneath and then mm-hmm. one going like side to side or mm-hmm. something? And you're bringing me back to the stress story. So we talked about the interior of the earth and, and stresses. And you're exactly right. When, when we have these plates moving relative to each other, there can be three types of boundaries. Plates can be actually pushing towards each other, and, and that creates compression. Um, that can cause uh, different uplift mountains like the Himalayas. And, and that creates one type of um, fault mechanism or, or different uh, weaknesses, um, weaker spots in the rock. But then plates can also diverge from each other. This ah. creates tension. They're like pulling from each other. And then that can also create other types of uh, plate boundaries. And the last one would be plates passing each other. And, and those uh, create uh, what are called strike-slip faults. And for example, in California, we have a great example, the San Andreas uh, Fault Zone. I was just going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you what kind of San Andreas was. So the San Andreas is the, it's the slip yeah. kind. It's the back and forth. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. is there one that's the most dangerous? <laughs> so, so there are ways to uh, understand your hazard. And in the U.S., the, the most seismically active state is actually Alaska. Uh, but then uh, California, Oregon, and Washington, and all the Pacific Northwest also uh, are seismically active. And uh, in case of California, uh, you can see that multiple earthquakes have happened in the past and will continue to happen. It's a fault zone that is well studied by seismologists. So uh, we have a, well under- a good understanding of how, how fast those plates move, and, and we can um, assess the seismic hazard from there. Um, I'm, my ADD is kicking in so hard right now. Like <laughs> I have so many questions. It's like really killing me. Okay. So, okay. So I think I'm understanding there's, but, but so is there a type of fault that it, is like that San Andreas, the most dangerous kind of one, or is it like the mm-hmm. Mount, they're all kind of equally have their own risks. So there are different, uh, uh and the, the largest earthquakes actually happen when you have that convergence of two plates and one starts going below the other because very high pressures can build up. And then once those are released, that's when very large magnitude earthquakes happen. And those are called subduction zone earthquakes. Uh, Japan is, uh, uh, has a subduction zone. Um, we have in the Pacific Northwest a subduction zone as well that possible that can uh, create 9.0 magnitude earthquakes. Uh, Chile is another example. The largest uh, earthquake that we've seen is a 9.5, 9.6 earthquake uh, in Valdivia, Chile. When was that? When? 1960. It was? Mm-hmm. Did everything just get like 
totally demolished because it's like the biggest earthquake? Tulare's has a great um, code uh, seismic uh, for seismic design. And we've seen uh, more recent earthquakes like the Mallet earthquake in 2010, very large magnitude earthquakes, and, and their structure seems to withstand these loads. Because the, the main idea for us, earthquake engineers, is to make sure we understand the hazards so that our civil infrastructure can be built in accordance so that we can they can withstand those forces. And I think Chileans has done, have done a good job. In the 60s, yes, there was a lot of damage. Uh, but I think they've, they've grown and, and learned a lot from their earthquakes from then. I feel like we need to do a separate podcast about like that specific earthquake. Cause like oh, yeah. a 9.6, I've never heard about that. That's like so mm-hmm. gigantic. That's so huge. I can't even imagine. Okay, wait. Mm-hmm. So, okay. I'm so obsessed. I feel like I've learned so much already. I know that the different types of earthquakes, I know the different types of waves. I know the difference between an earthquake and then an earthquake related like ground movement. So, and then ring of fire, honey. That's like that whole, like those tectonic plates of like Japan to China, that yeah. like the Eastern side of Russia, Korea, and then like to Alaska and then the Western side of the U.S. West, like all the way down to Chile and like, you know, like the major. Okay. So that's like, yeah. so isn't that, is that the place where they're most common, the ring of fire mm-hmm. or do they have in other places too? Mm-hmm. That's where 90% of the earthquakes happen actually in that ring of fire, that second Pacific belt and, and all the, uh, Coast of those uh, countries that you mentioned have seen, uh, have seen very large amounts of earthquakes pretty much annually. Uh, from the from that system uh, in the U.S., as I said, uh, the western coast is the most seismically active, and Alaska. But but yeah, ninety percent is from there. <laughs> Okay, so this is like a hard right question. Like I didn't know I was going to ask it, but now it's just like on, on my mind, and I can't help but wonder. Could North America along the Mississippi River, like, could those just split down the middle and become like two, like? bodies of tectonic plates and like not be one like could the missus could they just start like pulling apart and then become like that one kind of zone and or does that like how long would that take or is that probably yeah. not going to happen because they're moving together like what do you think okay a lot of questions and sorry and I guess I know that's great uh I think you're asking a good question because the the what's underlying that question is our understanding that earthquakes happen in the boundaries between those plates right but then what you're talking about in Mississippi it's right in the middle of the North American plate. So what I've explained so far about that interaction between plate boundaries doesn't quite explain an earthquake there or what, what's the situation in terms of those uh, weak spots within the rock. So seismologists so have studied this for a while and, and there's still room to understand the mechanisms. They, they are not fully understood so far. We do have, when you look at the hazard for the seismic hazard for the U.S., we have seismic sources from historic earthquakes, basically earthquakes that were not recorded because we didn't have any instrumentation then. But there are features in the ground that allows science, geoscientists to understand that there was an earthquake. And they can back calculate the uh, magnitude, the size of that earthquake and and try to use it to characterize the hazard there. So there have been earthquakes um, there in that zone, uh, as well as in South Carolina. But we don't quite understand what's going on within that plate. Why is that those zones of weakness, those fault system activating, they're just more infrequent, so they don't happen as, as frequently as the earthquakes from the San Andreas Fault, but we know that they, they can happen. Does that mean that like a river, like the Mississippi River, like, could that create like a weak spot in the tectonic plate that eventually could make mm-hmm. them for, like lava could come up from like beneath, from the mantle and they could maybe start to move away? I don't know why I want my hometown <laughs> to be a coastal town so bad. <laughs> like, I like I want it to be on the ocean, but I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah. But like, is it possible? Like, could that happen in like a million years? 
I'm not sure, Jonathan. Um, I I would have to to think uh, to put the head of a geologist, you know, to understand how the positional processes could like a river and and, and its uh, curse could create this weak spots there. Um, yes, you are genius. Yeah. I love it. It's just a separate episode. <laughs> Okay, so now another question. How much warning do people typically have for an earthquake? Like, can scientists, like, Mm -hmm. is there any sort of warning for it? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So uh, it depends. Not all earthquake-prone regions have early warning systems. That's how they're called. Uh, Fortunately, here in the U.S., there is a program, it's called Shake Alert, and it is now working, and and you can get a, um, a warning, an early warning of possible earthquake shaking within seconds. So basically, the warning will let you know it, when light or moderate ground shaking is coming your way in five or eight seconds. Um, this, however, has some limitations, of course. For one thing, it's important for people to know that this is not a prediction. An earthquake has to start for an early warning yeah for an early warning system to work and then it really depends on where you are if you're really close to the epicenter that is like that projection to the surface of where the fault started rupturing then uh, you will probably won't have enough time to get that notification because that notification comes from understanding where the earthquake is located and you need at least three or four sensors to to receive that signal first Mm. once you have but then seismologists can figure out the location of the earthquake and send the um, the early warning to people outside that that very close uh, area. So so yes, those exist. Those have been also very successfully implemented in Japan. And those seconds, people may think that you know what would you do with five seconds of a, of warning. But those have proved to be very very helpful in people just to get into protective action. You just have in those five seconds, it's coming. So you have to cover. And in California, they've, they've done a lot of this drop, cover and hold on publicity so that to create awareness of when you receive this early warning, then you have to drop to the floor, cover and then hold on until the ground shaking stops. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we're going to yeah. get into that more. Okay. Well, yeah. wait, so now I have another question. You're going to be so tired after this. You're going to be like, I've oh, never yeah. been like interrogated with questions like this about earthquakes so much. And Jonathan, only, like, you're doing a favor. I love talking about earthquakes. I can talk oh, so you love it. Cause we're not even like a third of the way through. Okay. So wait, what is, what's a seismic hazard? Mm-hmm. So that's the characteristic of an earthquake to cause damage. Mm. Uh, so this can be, for example, um, a ground motion of a given intensity. Um, and, and that can have just the, the, the threat or, or the potential to cause physical damage to civil infrastructure or lives. Yeah. Can there be a sinkhole from a earthquake? Like, can an earthquake, could like the go, 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 could that cause like a part of like a ground just go like, and then stuff just falls mm-hmm. through like sinkhole status? So you're, you're thinking about the effects of those earthquakes uh, and ground failures can happen. And there are many types of ground failures. Uh, one of the most um, pervasive ones is due to the soil losing all its strength and acting as a liquid. That's called liquefaction. So that happens in sands that are full of water and then they're very loose 
before the earthquake. You have those seismic waves arriving, and then there are so much pore pressure or water pressure built up that the, the, the soil loses all its, its strength. When that happens, you can imagine a foundation of a building embedded in that type of soil, they just would sink, right? So that type of uh, phenomenon can cause a lot of deformation in the ground. So we usually think about collapsing buildings or damage to the column or a beam of a structure, but we don't think much about what happens to the ground. And you can have very large uh, ground cracks because of an earthquake. You can also have a lot of settlements, so buildings just basically sinking in because of uh, liquefaction happening as well. And then there are also other effects like landslides, for example, that are triggered due to this uh, earthquake motion. Yeah. So is this, is this tsunami a tsunami seismic hazard yeah. too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It has to be associated with the specific characteristics of the event. But yes, it can happen in certain regions um, and, and they can be very, very damaging. Yeah, tsunamis are another important effect from earthquakes, yeah, to consider. Because the early warning is like, yes, we love five to eight seconds, but it's not like... Mm-hmm. you know, like a long, and you got to have the earthquake happen. Is yeah. seismic risk something that can be mitigated? Like, is it just like just Absolutely. through architecture or like public planning? All mm-hmm. of it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of it. <laughs> yeah, all of it. The answer is we need everybody involved. Uh, science, as I recently heard in a, in a workshop, and I love it, is only half of the equation. You need community engagement. You need people and communities to understand the hazard. And this has been very a very eye-opening experience for me, Jonathan, because all my academic life, let's say, I've been focused on, on the science, on the technical aspects of earthquakes, how to analyze earthquake ground motions, how to understand when they are more damaging to civil infrastructure and when they are not. But then um, more recently, I've become more aware of how people react to earthquakes because it's their lives. That, that we want to, to save as well, not, not just preserve the integrity of the building. So when you when you think about how communities can, can reduce their risk and how civil infrastructure can reduce the risk, immediately you go into just a, a connection or a combination of different areas. So you need earthquake scientists, but you also need social scientists. You need um, planners, urban planners. You need people connecting and, and translating the science to the public. So that when I talk in terms of probability of hazard, uh, what we're doing today, uh, I think it's really important for people to, to understand the basics and how that can affect them. So, so yeah, to, to mitigate the risk that is the hazard and its consequences, we have earthquake engineers working on the technical aspects, right? How to make the building safer. And there is a lot of research on that. Structural engineers uh, have done a great job on understanding how different structural elements can be reinforced and improved uh, for improved behavior under an earthquake uh, motion. And then you also have geotechnical engineers who work on stabilizing the ground so that that process I described earlier, the look of action doesn't happen. And, And that combination should help reduce or mitigate that risk. And then the last part is the social aspect. And unfortunately, we don't do as much. Uh, in my personal case, I'm, I'm hoping to do more as, as I continue my, my career in academia. But um, from the technical aspect, we are a little bit um, not as connected to the community. Uh, there are social scientists specialized in natural hazards who have done uh, an excellent job on preparedness. Uh, 
so that communities know the you know the very basics to improve their their performance after earthquakes yeah and recovery that's very important so it's like we have the science side feels pretty covered like between people mm-hmm. like you and then like the geologists mm-hmm. and then the seismologists mm-hmm. and then the structural engineers what yeah. are the people called who studied the dirt again <laughs> the soil you mean that's what i mean <laughs> oh that's like when people say like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna dye my hair and then i'm like we color our hair we dye easter eggs <laughs> yes it's the soil of awesome. course i can connect to that story and yes. i teach the technical engineering for my junior students in undergrad and that's one of the first things i say is like you are not allowed to call this dirt anymore this is a three-phase system you have a solid portion water and air <laughs> yes <laughs> which is soil <laughs> It's soil, yes, honey. It's called so, soil. <laughs> and that's a, so is that the technical engineer who studies soil? So that's a civil engineer. So, civil engineer. Uh, yeah, civil engineers. We have a different um, um, sub-disciplines, I would call them. Um, you have structural engineers, transportation, water resources, environmental engineers, and then you have geotechnical engineers. And we deal with earth materials, rocks, and soils, and how to uh, incorporate civil engineering technology to uh, to work with this materials. But I did just think of something because, like, obviously, Haiti just had a huge mm-hmm. earthquake. And it's like, I definitely, it's just coming up for me that there are certain countries that are experiencing these seismic hazards and like they don't have the infrastructure of these like social engineers mm-hmm. and seismologists and geologists to like help to plan for these. I'm Venezuelan uh, and what you just explained was the reason I started to to feel that I needed to do more and in my science and and that I, I we call disproportionate effects of earthquakes. You can have the same magnitude or the same size of earthquake happening in two different countries and the effects can be uh, very, very different because of the community preparedness and, and lack of resources and so on. Uh, I just wanted to say that um, I recently joined a team that we are doing virtual reconnaissance in Haiti, precisely because we believe that there is a lot of data that should be collected, documentation that we can provide and help, most importantly, help uh, for Haitians to um, recover um, from, from the earthquake. So, so yeah, a lot of volunteers have, um, you know, started to work with Haitians to, to just um, help after the, this earthquake because they will continue to happen. Like, what's up with that, like, Atlantic Ocean ring of fire that, like, Haiti keeps having these earthquakes? <laughs> like, there's, like, a little active spot over there, too, I guess. Yeah, there's an interaction of four different plates right there. Yeah. Oh, it's an, it's an four. Dang. Okay, that's, <laughs> yeah. yes. Okay, yeah. so, okay, so soil is, like, a three-dimension... You three just said something. Yeah, face, because <laughs> it's the air, the water, and then like the, the solid, the, the solid, solid yes, the yes, grains, yes, yes. Yeah. yes. I was like, I know it's not the dirt; it's the yes, the <laughs> solid. Yeah. So yes, um, so then, what are some soil? What are like some common soil type classifications? And then also, like, how closely can they differ? Like mm-hmm. in one square block, can you go from like two totally different types of soil? Yeah. So you have coarse grain soils, sands, and gravels. Those are the ones that you can see the grains with your naked eye. So you go to the beach, that's that's sand right there. Um, And then you have fine grain soils, and those can be clays or silts. So clays can be sticky, they're moldable, they're plastic, uh, versus the the granular soils, uh, sands and gravels. They are not affected by water. Uh, You can have different sizes, particle sizes, and that defines much of their behavior rather than their interaction with water. For clays, water is really, really important. 
Okay, mm-hmm. so fine green, coarse. Is there any mm-hmm. other ones? Or are those no, the main two types? Okay. <laughs> and then that's the silt and the clay. Can you give me an example of like some big cities who have like different ones? Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder what Venice is made of. Is that like clay because it's sinking <laughs> or something? Yeah, so, uh, oh, I can tell you about a... Um, a very iconic case study that we use in geotechnical engineering. You, you know the Leaning Tower of Pisa, of course. Yes. Yeah. So, so that's a geotechnical problem right there. It's it's really a settlement that's different uh, because of the different soil properties in that zone. So it started to tilt throughout its construction, really. It was just constructed in stages. And then what happens to clays is that with time, as uh, you put more pressure on them, water escapes from that three-phase system, and then the soil starts becoming stronger and stronger. Because they, they had just different types of clays, then the towers start uh, settling more on one end than the other. And then, uh, it, it's funny, but engineers know how to deal with settlements by now, so you would think, well, you, you can definitely put it back you know, to vertical. But the reason they don't do it is because of tourists. Nobody will go and take a picture with a vertical tower because it's not uh-huh. interesting. But now it has been engineered so that it remained tilted. Uh, but it all started because it's a technical issue. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I understand the soil class. There's basically there's coarse, which is your sand and then like your gravels. And then there's the fine green, which is like your silts and your clays. I wonder mm-hmm. what like the Midwest is on. This is the thing. I, you can use geology to have an understanding of the the positional environment. That means, is there a river close by and then that transported some deposits and those were, you know, um, deposited in a a given way. That can tell me something about the properties of those soils. I can can have an expectation. Uh, Let's say we are in Boston or in Alaska where there's glacial movement. Then I can also have an expectation from the type of soils that will be highly variable in particle sizes um, because of that glacial movement. So there's something about the history of of that geology and and those depositions that can tell me in a general way what to expect. However, this is why you need geotechnical engineers. You don't know until you do a failed investigation. So let's say you know you want to construct a building. You cannot just rely on geology to decide what type of foundations you're going to use or how deep they will they're going to be or if they're going to be shallow. So you need a geotechnical consultant to go to the site and actually dig some holes and take some samples. With those samples, then we can understand that that profile, what, what actual soils are there in that site. And then the properties, can you take some of those samples to the lab and then take some tests or conduct some tests and learn more about, you know, strength properties of that soil and so on. How many holes would you have to dig like on mm-hmm. a site for like, let's say like an apartment building, like mm-hmm. how many holes and how deep would they have to go? It depends. <laughs> it depends because uh, of budget and how critical your infrastructure is. So if this was a nuclear power plant, then you need to understand the spatial variation of that soil. If this is an apartment building or if this is a one-story home or a two-story building, then you, you need less of that. I, I would put an asterisk because that's where a geothermal engineer will look at the geology. Because if this is an area where I can expect high variability in, in, in soils, then I would do a little bit more of an investigation to, if when budget allows, that's usually the constraint, um, to understand uh, how my soil layers are changing in the project side area. 
Yeah. But, but yeah, and then the depth, it would also depend on when you find uh, the, the bearing layer. So a strong enough soil that will be able to bear the load of whatever building or structure. Oh, so that's like one of like the buzzwords that geotechnical engineers are looking for is like, oh, we need to find like the bearing layer of this soil. Mm-hmm, like what's the mm-hmm. layer? Like, is that a hundred feet down or like, what's like an average? <laughs> Uh, it, it depends. It varies a lot. You would, and this is something, Jonathan, that I loved about geotechnical engineering. We didn't have a manual. There isn't a recipe that you can follow. It's really engineering judgment, following soil mechanics, understanding the fundamentals, and accounting for uncertainty. You won't have the same project twice, even working for the same company, even for the same block, because soils are that variable. Okay, so like an architecture like firm comes to you and like mm-hmm. they're gonna go build a high rise in Miami and they're like, We need a geotechnical engineer. We need you to like go out into the field and like dig these holes and our budget's like a kajillion dollars. Mm-hmm. What is the thing that like when you pull up the soil and go to the lab where you're like, oh shit, this is like some clay <laughs> ass fucking water. Like this isn't like you, you know, like you know, people yeah. in hell probably want ice water, but you can't have it because there's just not there's not enough money, honey. Like yeah. what's the thing yeah. that when you go out in the field, you're like, oh fuck, I didn't want to see this. Like, or or it's just gonna make it way more expensive because it's like the worst type of thing to build on. Like, what's mm-hmm. that stuff? Yeah. So for is it clay? It's clay. <laughs> it's clay. So clays can be very tricky because they can compress there. They're very compressible. And then they, they, they will create settlement, right? In your building. And if that settlement is not uniform, which is, if you consider the variability, spatial variability of soils, then that will most likely be the case. And that's the main issue with, um, you know, building, having, and that's when the door won't close or your window won't, uh, it will be tilted. Mm-hmm. It's not that the building will collapse because of the settlement, but the non-structural damage is pretty expensive. So you don't want that. Um, so yeah, glaze would be one thing that makes you just say, okay, what are we going to do about settlement? Uh, there are two issues. Uh, actually, the settlement is one, so how much it can compress. And then also the strength. Um, if they are not strong enough, then you may have to do uh, you know, a few remediation techniques to, to make it stronger. Um, if you know, we go back to the Leaning Tower of Pizza with time and, and some load, the clay will eventually become stronger. But for some projects, you don't have the time just to sit and wait for the clay to get stronger, right? So there are a few things that you can do uh, to preload the, the clay uh, and, and get that ultimate strength that you want before you build. Will they like shoot like iron down in the ground and then like mix it up or something? <laughs> there are ground improvement techniques that include uh, mixing other agents that kind of strengthen the soil. Yeah, yeah. And and the other type of soil that you don't want to find, it's sands when they are loose and full of water because when an earthquake happens, that's when liquefaction uh, will happen as well. So even though from the pure geotechnical perspective, they are clean sands, no, nothing wrong with them. Uh, when they are subjected to this very rapid loading, then sands will not drain that water. And then that's when the, the strength of the soil can really go to zero. And, and yeah, that's a big issue for, for geotechnical earthquake engineers. So that's, uh, that's bad news. <laughs> so because you know there's different soils, you got to like mitigate for all these different things that there are things you can do if you find a soil that you don't love. And mm-hmm. like, I hear like the, ground strengthening tech there's some ground strengthening things is there any like really fierce new like innovations in the field of like i don't know like magnet ass 
like unmovable, I don't know, geotechnical badassery <laughs> that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, yes, there are, there are techniques that we know work to improve the performance of civil infrastructure during earthquakes. That's, uh, that's for sure. And we go by components as well. So structural engineers, they've done uh, a lot of work on how to reinforce structural elements. So that's, that's there for, for one thing. Then you have the technical engineers who now understand how to strengthen our soils so that they they can react better or behave better during earthquakes. And then you have seismologists and earthquake engineers working on the hazard side so that we can reduce that uncertainty. Because if you know, if you have a better understanding of what to design for, then everything else um, should should be improved as well. Uh, in terms of um, what's really innovative in the field, so uh, I think that there are a couple of developments that are important. So one is how we are sharing data now. Uh, because we have multiple earthquakes and, and now a lot of instruments around the world, scientists are feeling more comfortable sharing that big data. And because of transparency, you want to make sure that the data I put forward, you can reproduce it and, and you can reproduce all my analysis. So there is a, um, a, an effort, I would say, by the community uh, that's called the Natural Hazard Engineering Research Infrastructure. And they have this basic cyber infrastructure component where we all put our data together and we can store it there, we can share it, and you can publish it. So this can be a game changer because uh, Scientists will be able to collaborate more easily. The data is right there. You can build up on somebody else's research. So that on its own has been a big investment and, and hopefully more and more scientists will continue to use it. There are also uh, very big advances in reconnaissance. So what we were just talking about um, Haiti, you need a special equipment to gather certain types of data. And now we're using drones, for example, to capture capture the, the extent of uh, a landslide a type of uh, ground failure. Whereas before you would have to go by foot and try to figure out where, where is the ground uh, shaking, mm. you know, more damaging. Now you can use this type of techniques and get a, a better view. And then there are also um, modeling efforts where um, because we there's still so much that we don't, uh, don't have data on, for example, large magnitude earthquakes at short distances, um, those are the hardest to, to gather some data on. Then we have to use simulations. And then in that aspect, we also have like very um, innovative ways of modeling fault ruptures and, and how they can affect uh, civil infrastructure. So because there is a lot of this has to do with like soil and I would imagine like water flooding, climate change can affect soils in some ways, maybe frequency, maybe intensity. Like, do you, does the, does the scientific community that studies seismic hazards see a threat from climate change? Do they see an increase like in seismic activity as a result of climate change or yes, no, maybe? If you recall our discussion on the driving mechanism of earthquakes, they happen in the interior of the earth. So um, my intuition says that unless climate change can affect how those driving mechanisms happen, 
then um, I don't know how it would have a direct effect. Climate change does change the multi-hazard aspect. And that's something that we've seen more extreme events now. So Haiti is another example. Puerto Rico is another example where the earthquake happens. Yes, it happens uh, and then follows a hurricane. So mm. how can engineers, because I am almost siloed in my seismic design with no awareness of other hazards that can also impact uh, earthquakes. And, and there are, I should say, colleagues that do work in this multi-hazard space. It's really, really complex. Uh, but then we've seen it in recent history, how it can impact communities so badly. And now during a pandemic. So it's really clear how studying hazards, natural hazards, is much more than understanding the fault rupturing. We will need to understand how our seismic hazard interacts with other hazards, interacts with the social dimensions in a given region, the social, political, and economical unrest, and, and you know, uh, inequities, as well, inequities as well, to fully get the picture ready. Um, and this is for single sites or single buildings, but we also need to think in terms of systems, how a whole city is being damaged or, or affected by this multiple hazards so yeah in that in that respect i think that we need to try to expand our perspectives to try to include these other dimensions that are definitely playing a key role especially in recovery hell yes love that didn't expect to learn that today so i love that okay so wait let's picture it what do people that live in earthquake prone zones like need to have in their house like do you have like an earthquake like rescue pack in your closet like do you have some like two-way walkie talkies and some like freeze-dried food and shit and like a gun in case like everything's all fucked up and you gotta like i don't know i'm just brainstorming here queen i'm trying to like survive an earthquake like what do we need to do to like survive an earthquake like what do we all need in our closet like do we need like it's like NASA food, a sleeping bag, like a secure and like internet fucking thing, a generator. What do we need, Queen? I would say an emergency plan, Jonathan. That's the the biggest because you you have let's say your your family members and maybe the earthquake will happen during night and you're all together. That's great, but maybe not. Maybe you know the kids are at school, you're working your partner's working. So you need to have a consensus in terms of if an earthquake happens, we're going to meet here. If an earthquake happens, this is how we understand how you would evacuate your office, for example, if it happens there. So that, that would be one thing, the emergency plan. And then if at, at your house, at your home, I would have a, a kit, a, a bag with some supplies. So some food that will not you know, perish and batteries. I remember in Venezuela, my mom used to have a bag full of the most amazing chocolates. Like my, my aunt will bring those from the US. And then she would say, this is for the earthquake kit. And I'm like, mom, and we never had an earthquake. And those went to waste. <laughs> and I had this negative reaction to that kit. I'm like, we're just wasting amazing food in this. So maybe once a year, just like a month right. before it goes bad, right. you clear it out and then you redo right. it. But you do think like that, like having like some sort of kit. And I know that there's like actually companies who do like prefabricated kits that have like mm -hmm. a sleeping bag and have like some walkie talkies and stuff. So we can um, include that on the link of this episode. Because I, I think that those are really cool and I want one, but you feel like this is important. Like it's, it's not a joke, like everyone. And then do you think as well in your trunk, like if you have a car, like should you have like a little mini one maybe in your car if you were to get stuck? in like a parking garage or like be at like a weird time when there's an earthquake like in your car i i i haven't thought about Am I it paranoid? i would have it in my, <laughs> in my house you can definitely have some 
you know, some supplies there, water, just in living case. in LA for 10 years. I, every time I drove into a parking structure, like in Target or wherever, like an underneath the ground parking structure, I was always like, oh, fuck. This is like the last place I want to be. If there's like, I always just got like stress under there. Okay. Yeah. So wait, moving on to, cause I know that like I could literally interview for six hours and I have like eight <laughs> more like in questions that I have to get through. So picture <laughs> it. Like you're in your house or you're at work or wherever the fuck. And yeah. you, you like, cause I've, cause I think I've been through th- two earthquakes. One was like, or no, three, but they were all between like four and five. So they weren't like gigantic, but I definitely like felt them. There was a one felt like a little like mini vibrate, like horse hooves. And then I like, I was out to dinner and I like looked under the table because I like thought that there was, I was like, where are those horses coming from? And then it really started to shake for like literally three seconds. And what was hilarious was I was out to dinner with a husband and wife who are good friends of mine. The husband literally like jumped out of the table, almost flipped the table and started to run. And no one else in the restaurant like did anything. So it kind of was like, he was like the George Costanza in that episode of Seinfeld when he like jumps over people, like old ladies, like pushes them down to like save himself. That was like a little bit our friend. And we were like, oh yeah, you're so big and tough in this earthquake. The other two, I was in my apartment, but in all three cases, I wholeheartedly was like really scared because I also like didn't know what to do. Like I I grew up in Tornado Alley. Like I knew like you got to get to the basement. Like you go to a basement or a room with no windows. You go up against a wall. You crouch in the position. You cover your head and you like hope to God that you make it. But like in an earthquake, I've heard like go under a door jam. I've heard hide under a table. I've also heard like run outside, like run in the middle of the street, like I feel like I've heard all those things. Like, what do you do if you're inside and you really start to feel like there is an earthquake? And how long can they last? Like, does the, does the Richter scale account for like how, like the longness of the shaking, or is it only the intensity? Mm-hmm. Good question. So, uh, the recommendation is to drop cover and hold on until shaking is is over. Uh, I would say that looking at uh, there are some videos that you can find of people's actual reaction during earthquakes, the security cameras and things like that. Uh, and you can see how people will do that just for a few seconds. But when the when the shaking lasts longer, starts to feel like a minute of shaking, that's an indication of a higher or of a larger magnitude earthquake. And those can be very, very destructive. So that's where I personally would just run outside just uh, because it means that there's a higher potential for damage in the building that I'm in. Uh, And maybe aftershocks, if it's lasting for a long time, maybe you're going to have stuff keep going. Mm -hmm. But uh, those will take a little bit after the main shock. So I'm talking about the duration of that main shock. You drop, cover, and hold. That's that's what you should do. And then uh, what I've seen in these videos is that when this is starts, like this happened after the Tohoku earthquake in Japan, during an earthquake conference, by the way, and these were earthquake engineers right there, and it was all captured in video, they would wait. But then they started to see that the earthquake shaking would continue. And, and that's when they knew that this was a very large magnitude earthquake and, and they left the room. So basically, once you feel the shaking, like... I felt like for me in both cases, um, cause one of the times I was in an outdoor patio, like eating, that was the first of that time I wasn't as scared for like around me cause there was no roof. But the other times they were like within four days of each other. It was like 2015, I think in March. It actually saved me $1,700 cause my cat had eaten like eight hair ties and he was in the hospital about to have surgery, but the oh. earthquake literally scared the shit out of him and he passed all the hair ties and he'd eaten like a seven inch piece of scratching post that was like 
like this like hay and it like blocked him all up and he was so sick but the earthquake literally scared the shit out of him that morning and so he didn't need surgery so it's kind of amazing but I was like in my apartment I was like oh my god I hope Larry's okay he's probably so scared but then like and both and actually one of them I feel like the shaking did kind of last a while but it wasn't that intense it was like the slow but I was like, what do I do if like, because it was like a first floor apartment where I was like on stilts, you know, like over like the parking garage. I was like, what if this like falls? So if it does last more than a minute, you do recommend like maybe grabbing your purse if it's on the way out the door and like getting out of your apartment or your house. Yeah, and what you're describing is, is a typical uh, structure that that we've seen collapse in multiple times where you have an open floor and then a change in that stiffness from a very small uh, or, or uh, short column, and then uh, the, the first floor of the building. Those are very common in Venezuela as well. My mom and my dad live in one, and I've told them you just have to get out because that that may fall. Um, I, I would like to. I think it's it's difficult to tell people what to do, uh, especially as I, I'm not working in, in you know, preparedness and, and um, urban planning. However, what I've seen consistently being uh, requested from people is to drop cover and hold until the shaking stops. So I think that's the safest you can be. Um, just from my personal experience, knowing how duration is linked to magnitude, uh, it's not a direct link, but you can expect a larger magnitude earthquake to last longer. The, the ground shaking to last longer, um, then I would say that, yeah, uh, if you are more than a minute and you're still feeling a strong ground shaking, then it's probably a big one. Because I remember going to, I ran into a door jam. Like I ran like under a doorway because I thought I remembered someone saying that. So that's like what I did. Mm-hmm. But like, should you, if you're inside and you're just doing the immediate like drop cover thing, like, should you... And maybe not like like you personally, because like I know that like there's other people who like study this more. So I don't like make you uncomfy. But like, would you like quickly like have the wherewithal? Do you obviously you don't know until you do it? But would you like maybe like just look up to make sure that you're not like, you know, drop and covering under like a plate of dishes or like. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. Yeah. But basically be aware of your surroundings and everything that can fall down will fall down during uh, a moderate uh, earthquake. So so yeah, uh, try to stay away from everything, anything that can fall onto your head or and that's the, when the cover part, um, you know, comes to play. Oh, do you mean cover with your hands or like get under a desk cover? Oh, no, no. no. Oh, so both under the desk and just try to protect as much as possible your head. Yeah. So what about that? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I'm going to ask a well, have you ever heard of that pocket of triangle of safety or whatever to like get next to the desk or whatever, as opposed to like under it? Because if something falls, it might make like a triangle. I've seen it. But again, the, the most recent recommendations, there are like um, earthquake uh, drills in California and, and probably in the all the Pacific Northwest as well. But I've seen these drills and, and that's what they recommend to kids in school, for example, is drop, cover, and hold on. So okay, there's some science after earthquakes. The issue with me is that I, I do all my work before like, the earthquake happens. And then after there's so much work, not only reconnaissance, but also in the recovery. How what, what could we have done better, right? In terms of the social response to the earthquake. That's the part where I, I am not, um, you know, as, as experienced with. But I think that from research and observations from past earthquakes, the the current recommendation is to cover, not to stay away. Because then something can fall. Yeah, if you're not covered. Yes. So, yeah. Okay, I'm obsessed. Now, and you mentioned a little bit of this earlier, but what inspired you to get into this field? 
Um, so I wanted to be a traditional geotechnical engineer. I wanted to do foundations and wanted to do uh, slope stability, that type of good stuff. Um, however, there is a social benefit that's very clear from earthquake engineering. And not that that's not in geotechnical engineering and civil engineering in general, but it was just so such an obvious motivation that it was hard to run away from it. Um, whenever I work on these issues, I, I feel the responsibility, but I also feel the, the empowerment of, I'm doing this and this is gonna help someone. If, if this model works, then someone in Latin America will have you know, a better seismic resistant uh, infrastructure or, or my community will be better prepared for the next big one. So it's, it very quickly connects you to a sense of belonging and, and need in the community. And that was really important for me. Um, especially with my students and I'm coming from Latin America where I've seen the devastating effects of earthquakes, I, it just connected with me and, and gave me that purpose beyond my curiosity in science and engineering. And so when you were little, did you like, so have you always kind of been a little bit prone to like math and like thinking that like the earth was like cool and stuff? <laughs> I love math. I, I really, really like calculus. I, I'm very logic. I, I like everything that you can analyze and, and divide into parts. Uh, I wasn't as good programming, or that's what I used to think, uh, maybe because we're not as exposed in, in Venezuela to that. So when I came to Virginia Tech to do my PhD, my advisor um, just said, oh, we're going to do earthquake engineering projects. You need to program. And my immediate reaction was, I'm not good at that. <laughs> Um, however, now I understand how this was wrong, right? It was just a perception of my own ability. And now programming is pretty much a, a big chunk of what I do. And, and it only took practice. It only took, as with everything else in life, right? For you to learn. I'm sorry to ask this question. And I hope no. you don't kill me after asking after an hour, but programming means you're programming oh. into computers? Coding, yes, coding. We're using a software, yeah. Coding. To like tell the computer like what could happen if like a plate shifts or like you're coding like different like models of different like seismic stuff. Yeah, to, to create a model of the, of the reality of whatever process. So you have the natural process and then uh, you use the data from observations and to, to fit your model and your model is a representation of the reality. But then with the model, it's almost like you have your own lab because then you can tweak it, you can change certain parameters, values and see what happens. So with earthquakes, we have ground motion models. And, and if you remember, it's not just the event, but the actual earthquake shaking. So the models put together all observations from the sensors around the world, for us engineers to understand what type of acceleration would be possible within a certain range coming from a magnitude A and a distance B. Um, so oh. that, that type of modeling. And it's just something that you need, uh, it's, a, it's a tool. So you can use it, uh, a programming language like MATLAB, for example, Python is another one, um, for many things really. In in my case, that's those were the platforms I was using um, for ground motion modeling but but i just wasn't exposed to it before so i thought that i could uh, i couldn't but do you're it. amazing at it as it turns out which we love okay this is my sec first to last question so there's only two more um, oh, no. <laughs> so what excites you the most about the next generation of engineers studying earthquakes and soil oh my god 
uh, can we have 10 more minutes on this? Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited about the next generation. I see a diverse group of genuinely interested uh, students and, and early career scientists looking at reducing seismic risk equitably and, and understanding all these different dimensions that we've been talking about. Traditionally, that hasn't been on the table. And I've seen more and more people aware of how we can better understand the seismic hazards in this context. Um, this next generations are so passionate. They, they have uh, fewer limitations. I think that we are understanding bias, implicit bias more uh, personally, in my group, I have a lot of female students who are fantastic. They, I learn from them so much every time, and and it's just inspirational to see their growth and and their ethics, how how they will work tirelessly to understand a concept uh, and how they understand the benefits to society. So we are in very good hands, I think, in terms of. Um, how they deal with data, uh, big data is one thing, how they deal with uncertainties, they are getting more and more ready to understand those and how they add that dimension from the social aspects. Uh, I think it's it's a very good sign that we our future will be bright. So yeah, it's it's one of the highlights of my job to work with those next generations actually. <laughs> I actually accidentally liked, I just remember I had one more question. I'm sorry. That was kind of back to the stuff that we were talking about earlier, but I got to ask if someone lives in a high earthquake area, can someone find out what kind of soil they live on? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And even their seismic hazard. And, and this is a good question, Jonathan, because uh, we can also provide people with resources to the USGS, the US Geological Survey, because they provide what's called a national seismic hazard model. And that you can go right now and figure out what the seismic hazard would look like for a, a given city, or if you have the latitude and longitude of your house, uh, you can uh, you can do that. That's amazing. And it can tell you, it's it has different layers, let's say, and you can have a lot of information there. But the USGS does a great job with that science communication. So you will have what you need to understand what that product is telling you and how to use it uh, either for research or for your own understanding of your seismic hazards uh, in, in your site or, or site of interest. Um, and then the soil. Um, yes, as I said before, there are like geologic maps available publicly that you could um, find online. Uh, but then if you really, really want to know what's below your house, then you need a geotechnical consultant to go and, and, and take a look at it and, and dig some holes, take a sample and figure out what the profile looks like. And this should have been done when the house was built so that they you know, identify any potential problematic soils and so on. So maybe those are already available if you ask. So this is, um, we you made it. That was like, I don't know if I've ever been like that tuned in for an interview in my entire career. Like I'm obsessed with earthquakes. This was like so much fun. <laughs> but now we've gotten to the point where it's like teacher's recess. Like, is there anything that we would just be remiss that you as a literal educator of earthquake stuff, like epicenter? We know that's like right where it happened, honey. We talked about the Richter, honey. We talked about the ring of fire. We got the induction. We got the... Maybe that was the wrong number, name. Well, yeah, subduction. We got all the stuff. We got all the terms. Is there anything else that you would just be remiss if we didn't mention? Or is there any place where you like want people to follow like your work that you all are doing? Or is there anything that's coming up that you really want to talk about? It's like the floor is yours where you're not being in, in interrogated. You can take as long as you want. So if there's a few things that you just feel like we wish that we mentioned and we didn't, the floor is all yours. Um, good. Um, I'm, I was trying to think about how how much we 
talk about the hazard aspect of it. Um, I did talk about the USGS. They are a prime example of how to reduce seismic risk. They, they are a group of scientists, geoscientists, earthquake engineers, uh, geologists who, who work um, really on, on creating products that serve the community. So uh, I think if we can highlight how, how great uh, the national seismic cancer model works for the US, uh, I think that's good because the, that's an important product that's used in the building code, for example. So one thing that we didn't get to was how do we translate the, the hazard to the load that we use in, in the structural engineering for you know, constructing your building, for example. So that, that link, it's usually a collaboration between USGS and uh, the building community. So all the people working on the codes and what engineers ultimately use as that recipe for, oh, you, you, you got this clay, it's very soft, then you should understand A, B, and C. So that type of connection between the research, the science, and the application is important in uh, earthquake engineering. So so that's happening very well. And I think I, I saw another comment on what's what's what are we doing well to reduce seismic risk? And I think that collaboration is something that we are doing very well. Um, we see more and more seismologists talking to geotechnical earthquake engineers like me and translating that to uh, structural engineers and so on. So I think that that is key for solving um, or reducing seismic risk. And, and yeah, I, I hope that that also came from, you know, come across from our discussion. And so really it's a matter of like making sure that we take what's working well for us here in the U.S. and trying to create a model that other countries and other mm -hmm. governments can use to protect to protect themselves from seismic hazards um, yeah. because it's not like an equitable thing. Like not everyone has access to that model. So being able to share those resources with people sounds like a really interesting and important frontier in learning about seismic hazards and how we can help prevent them. And you remind me, uh, there are organizations, Jonathan, that do just that. They, they really... I just recently started to think about it, how an earthquake happens in Japan and New Zealand, and a lot of science is done there, a lot of collaboration, a lot of, you know, let's learn from this earthquake. But then you see an earthquake in Haiti, Ecuador, Colombia, and there isn't the same level of response. And, and that, that happens because of many reasons. One of the reasons is the lack of resources, lack of connections. In my work in Haiti right now, we're struggling to find an earthquake engineer there that, that has seen liquefaction, that has seen a ground crack before and can help us take a picture. That is the, the limitation of our study right now because we, we cannot, we're not connected. But I don't think it's because they don't have earthquake engineers. They are there. We just haven't done that homework. We haven't connected to that community the same way we've connected with the Japanese. So uh, there's definitely a lot for us to do in terms of that equity, in terms of understanding tectonics. Why are the tectonics in the Caribbean not as well understood? Um, so how can we, and of course there are limitations in terms of, you know, government, stability, economy, and all of that. But from the science perspective, I think that we can do a lot. Education, uh, inspiring the next generations. Uh, I wouldn't have chosen earthquake engineering if I had stayed in Venezuela. Uh, I would have done, you know, soil mechanics and that was it. But coming here, it just broadened my perspective. And now I understand that Venezuela would have seismic hazards that should be studied and, and we just don't do it as well. So, so yeah, that's a, a great point. And I, I did have some recommendations of these organizations that are nonprofit and they 
look at the most vulnerable communities to these hazards. Uh, Tell us. Yes, yes. Uh, and there, are, there's one in particular that the CEO is a young woman from Mexico, and I just love her. She is amazing. Her name is Veronica Cedillos. And it's just, it gives me another, like if I weren't, if I wasn't doing this, I would go directly to her company and, and help the people, the community right there, just showing them what an earthquake looks like, how to deal with it, how to construct a better house. Um, and, and so on. So th- I think that work should be highlighted. And, and the other piece, if you're interested in like very innovative um, aspects of geotechnical engineering, uh, people are working with bacteria and you may like mm. this topic. They are, they're bacteria in the soil naturally. And people have uh, studied like bio-inspired methods to make the, the soil stronger uh, for earthquake related problems, but also in general, right? So I have this colleague at NC State, her name is Brina Montoya, and she basically studies how to feed the bacteria, how often, uh, how deep, and so on, so that she can create these connections in the soil. So we talk about solid, water, air. The main idea for soil to be strong is for those grain, the solid part, to be touching each other. So the more interlocking you have, the better, the stronger your soil is. And, And she's trying to create those connections by feeding this bacteria because they kind of create like as they grow they, they create this additional like clusters that she will yes plan it better but it's really interesting because it's a new wave in geotechnical engineering when everything is bio-inspired and i think that you will find it interesting if you look at that type of work because it's definitely forward-looking it involves biology chemistry it's really multidisciplinary and fun i would say so and it's like we've we've learned a little bit about how sand is like such a um, fleeting resource and how it's really there's only like that one type of sand that can do concrete and glass and it's like rapidly depleting. So that's amazing that we're coming up with more and new ways to make more sustainable things. I love that. Also, Ashley, we could literally have you back for like five more episodes. I love talking to you. You're amazing. And we really will have to have you back to like talk more things earthquakes because I feel like we just like scratched our surface and there's more things that I know you can share with us. Ashley Cabas, thank you so much <laughs> for coming on the show and for sharing your time and all of your brilliant scholarship with us. And just thank you so much for your work and everything that you're doing. We can't wait to keep following you and cheering you on and definitely having you back on Getting Curious. So thank you so oh, much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Ashley Cabas. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. And if you enjoyed our show, honey, tell everyone you know. Please do us all a favor and show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bosick. <laughs>